My name is Abby, and I'm the voice behind the Evolving Love Project. In this podcast, my husband and I deep dive into the topics of non-monogamy and polyamory, drawing from our experiences from the last eight years of being consensually non-monogamous. My name is Liam. Whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, curious, or anything in between, we invite you to join the conversation. Let's begin. Angela Boppier is a comedian, writer, and journalist. She's the host and executive producer of the ABC's podcast, Schmeitgeist, about what's driving major trends in pop and internet culture. Before that, she was the co-host of the ABC's first daily news podcast, The Signal, and has more than 15 years' experience as a reporter and producer. Angie's is also a regular on the Australian and UK comedy festival circuit and is touring two new shows in 2023. She moonlights as the cello accompanist for acclaimed improv outfit Bear Pack with Steen Raskopoulos and Carlo Ritchie and is one half of the comedy web series Imposters with Jane Watt. One time she played the cello at Natalie Portman's birthday. And thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We're super excited to be having this conversation with you. I recently uh, got a message from a friend and it said, quickly turn on ABC 666 radio. There's a really awesome woman and she's talking about polyamory and non-monogamy and all of these things and, you know, turn it on. So I so I listened to it and I, I heard you on the radio and I just thought you were fantastic and I loved everything that you oh. had to say about non-monogamy. And then, of course, I went further and I found your podcast and I got listening to a recent episode that you did on polyamory and non-monogamy. And and, uh, you know, it just had me thinking, why did you choose to do an episode on non-monogamy for your podcast? Well, the short answer is because, I mean, so we're a trend podcast and not that like, again, like it's reductive to call ethical non-monogamy a trend, but, you know, I just felt like it had been getting so many more mentions in the world and so many more people I knew I'd been having that conversation with them, like, oh, we're, like, we're trying this. And this has been, like, gradually building over a number of years. Um, and so, like, from the very long list of topics that we have at the beginning of season, uh, of a season of Schmeichgeist, um, you know, we whittle and whittle and whittle. And the test is, like, okay, what's what's got depth and what is, like, there's a genuine, like, why question. Like, why is this happening now? Um, like, and, you know, is the answer interesting? You know, the driver's behind this, you know, what, like, and this one kind of made the cut. It was like, which is because we're doing eight uh, episodes in this season because they're all quite in depth. And I, uh, yeah, I felt like it, there are some really interesting answers to that question about why it's, why it's happening now. Also like very personal. I was like, I can talk about this. I can talk about this all day because I've, uh, I've been, you know, some version of ENM, like a lot of different permutations of that for most of my adult life. So, um, yeah, maybe, maybe somewhat selfishly, I was like, yes, an excuse to talk about this. 
So from having that idea of maybe I should do uh, a focus on uh, non-monogamy for the podcast, what was the process of the conception of, of moving from the idea to actually recording the podcast, you know, collating all these amazing interviews and different insights about non-monogamy? Um, can you talk us through a bit of the process of that? It's really just like what's bouncing around in my brain because I try and just read as much as possible and um, and look at who is saying, like who has clever things to say on a topic um, whoever that is. And Sally Olds wrote this collection of essays. So um, she's a NAM-based um, essayist who, who released her first collection of essays, I think it was last year, called People Who Lunch. And in it she writes these really like acerbic and funny uh, essays about all kinds of things, like everything from like um, – you know, crypto to like anti-capitalist sentiment, like they're, but they're very personal essays. And she has a couple about um, being in a poly relationship, but and she didn't talk about it in that cringe way that I think can sometimes happen. Like where, where, you know, the, the personal and like interesting and like lived nature of um, and the complexity and beauty of being in a, uh, you know, in a non-monogamous framework is sort of obliterated by theory speak. She was very funny and very real and very kind of, um, yeah, I think funny is like one of my main filters. And I was like, I have to interview Sally Olds. Uh, And of all the people I spoke to uh, for this, for this episode, for for this season, she was weirdly one of the ones who I was like, I was actually kind of like starstruck by. I was a little bit like, oh, my God, I'm interviewing Sally Olds. She's so funny and so cool. That's um, how we feel about you, so. <laughs> yeah, awesome, great. Um, <laughs> and she's, yeah, she was just like this really easy, personable chat. I also interviewed Alyssa Shalaski who, because we like, you sort of want to like, because Sally's like, she she has like this personal um, take on it and, and, you know, is great at like turning it over and picking it apart like a Rubik's cube. Um, and, and, and then Alyssa, we will also, you also want to speak to someone who can demonstrate prevalence, who can be like, Oh, like how common is this? Because of course there's no data whatsoever about this, particularly in Australia. Like every now and then you get like a, a study in the U S but it's always, you know, mapping, um, the prevalence of, uh, non-monogamous relationships is really, really troublesome because it's not something that people disclose. It's not something that you like, like you don't register it with the government when you make that choice. And so they're just, it just isn't mapped. Also people have these complicated relationships with, um, like they don't necessarily, like they might, uh, they might be practicing something like that, but not necessarily put themselves in that camp, Mm. like really use the language or the theory or talk about it or be a part of a community that, conceives of itself that way. So yes, mapping it very tricky. There is a survey in Australia about once every 10 years that that um, looks at prevalence and we're nearly we're at nine years or something. So I was like, this data is no good to me. This is junk. Uh, and so we yeah, we wanted to talk to someone about prevalence. Alyssa Shalaski is a sex columnist for New York magazine and uh, you know basically interviews people, a lot of people, and she's been doing so for like eight years or something mm-hmm. uh, about their sex life. So I was like, here is the pers- perfect person to give me a sense of the, the trajectory 
of, of this one. Sally was so interesting in the conversation that you had with her because it felt like she was almost a little reticent to take on this kind of public persona of, hey, look at me, I'm polyamorous. You know, and, and I found that to be a really fascinating from someone within the public eye. And obviously she's got, you know, a, a public facing image that she didn't want her whole kind of public persona or identity to actually be consumed by, hey, that's the polyamorous author. Mm. You know, did you find that from any of the other people that you talked to? I think it really depends because it's like, so I, I think I was, I was almost really pleased. I was quite pleased when Sally was a bit like that because I, it, it gave us an avenue to talk about something that is very real for a lot of people who uh, practice, you know, some form of non-monogamy, which is um, that there is this, when you're perceived by the mainstream, even though that, you know, we're we're kind of constructing that scenario Mm. because that's, you know, something that is, a little bit theoretical, but like to the extent that you are perceived by the mainstream, there's all this reputational stuff that comes with being, um, having that label or having like, you know, any label that in that sort of category of family of labels. Um, and it's, it's, so on the one side, it can be quite, um, you know, there can be the moralistic judgment. I think that's the one that we're all most familiar with and that everyone sort of expects because it is, uh, you know, it is non-normative. Um, it does sit apart from what the kind of mainstream considers, what the default is. You know, we all know that we live in a, a culture that, um, no, yeah, normalises mono- monogamy as like the only way, um, the expected way. It's certainly the environment that I grew up in. Um, and so there's that. But beyond that, because there has over the last maybe decade, certainly five years, been this growing visibility um, and conversation around non-monogamy, uh, there is there is like a there's almost like an archetype that's developed, and whether or not you want to be associated with that archetype, even if the the public view of it isn't wholly negative or moralistic, you know, even the kind of like um, association with that. Well, we talked about you know the cringe, mm. um, and the cringe is like. Yeah, this sort of like very earnest, um, very, uh, I don't know, yeah, like it, it can very quickly become your your whole identity like because it's it's so um, surprising to some people or so like far from their reality that it they can't see anything else about you once they know that fact about you. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, that's the, that's the poly person. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Yeah, maybe it was something to do with that, but I think – yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of nuance in that, and it's and it's interesting. I'm still I'm still picking it apart myself. I'm some I'm recently like I've it's not like I've been there flying the flag for the last you know 10, 15 years of my my media career. This is like a really recent choice I've made to kind of be like, yep, that's me, and I'm happy to talk about it from a personal perspective as well as covering it. Uh, and and it's always uncomfortable, I think, when when you when you put a new aspect of your identity into any kind of public light, be it just in a, in your community or something larger. And then you have to grapple with however other people interpret that and live and essentially just live with and accept to some extent, whatever it is, 
whatever flows from that, you know, does that make sense? (laughs) Totally does. On the podcast as well, you know, speaking about, you know, people finding out and you also revealing a part of who you are, you mentioned on your Schmeitgeist episode that, you know, this is your moment of actually coming out to your parents as well, if they were to listen to this episode. And I just laughed. I thought that was amazing. Did you have any response from your parents? Like, did they listen to the episode? Have they brought it up? That was your big reveal moment. Nah. Okay. So, so yeah, that was, that was like the last way because I'm pretty open with my mom and dad, even though they are quite different to me. Like they've, my life so far has looked really different from what their lives has looked like. And I think that's the case for a lot of, you know, millennials and younger people younger than that with their parents. Um, there's this huge gulf, right. Between how we've experienced the world. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like I've sort of had this series of coming out moments with my parents as I've, as I've got, as I've moved through adulthood, whether that's, you know, saying, oh, by the way, like I'm, I actually told them that I was um, gay before I then like stepped that back. And I'm like, no, actually I am bi. I do still, you know, some, <laughs> some men, some of the time, um, but uh, you know, that, or like talking to them about, um, you know, periods of mental ill health, um, you know, different diagnoses along the way, ADHD, um, whatever it's been. And this was maybe the last way that I wasn't kind of out to them. But I also, uh, I just, I, I was kind of having like a bet each way by doing it on the podcast because I know that they don't listen to all of the, of the episodes. <laughs> because it's so not for them right like it's for um it's it's you know it's for uh people who've like generations who've grown up on the internet who have a very different cultural experience and you know this is like one of the abc's you know it's one of the projects that they that they're supporting that um that allows us to talk to that generation whereas so it's not, we'd be doing a bad job if my parents really loved this podcast, I think. Uh, we'd have we'd have fundamentally failed on some level. So they just like, you know, lovingly, you know, try and like listen to an occasional one that sort of makes sense. And they haven't said anything. And so if they've heard it, they haven't, they haven't mentioned it to me, which doesn't mean it's not a perfect test. It's possible that they have heard it and they just haven't told me because, um, my life's a little bit chaotic at the moment. Um, I've sort of recently gone through a separation between homes. I'm on a, like, I'm on, on deadline with, you know, this project. And so they might've just gone, let's not stress her out and not had the chat with me. Uh, and so I don't know, maybe it'll never come up, mm. but on some level I've, I've come out to them, I, I guess. With coming out, you know, you've just shared that you're a queer woman. Um, do, do you feel like there's, you know, there is a bit of hesitancy with coming out as non-monogamous as well? Or do you, like, do you feel like it, it was easier to come out as a queer bi woman than it has been to come out to people as being non-monogamous? No, but only because of the timing. Mm. So when I, when the, the first thing happened when I was like 19 and so I was still a baby and I really didn't have the tools for knowing how that conversation would go, um, I also wasn't part of like a, a big supportive queer community at that point. Like it was, it was Bathurst in the central west of New South Wales. It was uh, 2008 or something like that. And, uh, and I didn't really do it in a very planned way. I was having a very bad day anyway. Uh, 
that that actually doesn't touch the sides. I'd had like some very bad news. Like a friend of mine, I found out had died that morning and my mom came around to check on me and I was so just like, I don't know what, there's no logic. There's no real rationale to why I did it that way. But I think on some level I was like, things are so um, shit and difficult right now anyway. I may as well. And because I was very in love with um, a woman at the time and uh, so much so that I was like, well, it's women. Like it was like, that was this, it felt like the sort of scales falling away. And I was like, well, you know, that's, uh, that's who I am. And that's where I've been all along and, um, explains so much. And, uh, yeah, I'm gay and, uh, uh, and mom's here. So I'm, I'm going to tell her. And I did. And my mom had always been like this, you know, she, she thought of herself as a progressive person and, um, had always been, you know, I was a very loving, supportive family environment. And I thought I'll tell her and this won't be a big deal. Um, and it kind of was a big deal. Mm. And I was really surprised about that. And I just, I didn't have the tools at all for like responding to her, not responding well. I was like, oh, 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 oh. Um, and, and then I said, oh, whatever you do, please don't tell, um, dad because my father is, you know, I measure more conservative again, uh, and uh, I'm quite religious, and um, and I was like, this is not going to, this is not going to play well with Dad. I'm like, hey, look, okay, we've had this chat. I just need you. I will tell Dad. Just I need, I need to tell him in my own time. Please give me a bit of time. Can you do? Can you do that? She said, okay, okay. Anyway, she went straight home and told my dad, oh, and <laughs> but then I got this call from my dad, and his response was just infinitely um, more positive out the gate than my mum's had been. He, he was like, and I can't believe that you thought that I would love you any less. Like I, you know, of course, like, and he said the thing that um, he's, you know, he said, oh, my girl, because he always he called me, he calls him, calls me my girl. He says, oh, my girl, you know, there's, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing you could do to make um, me love you any less. Oh, I'm, I'm a bit teary because <laughs> um, it was this very – Beautiful response. Um, and so you just never know, I guess, is maybe the moral of that story. Uh, but, yeah, and then I guess, you know, and that was still a very 2008 country New South Wales, you know, I got, I was called homophobic terms. Like it was, we think of 2008 as like fairly late in that conversation, but it was particularly, you know, depending on which corner you're mm. in the world you're in, like it's, um, and it's still, you know, it's still a lot of, um, you know, shitty homophobia, obviously. Um, but yeah, I was, I was called names and it was, uh, uh, was treated differently and, you know, not in ways that have like broken or traumatized me, but, um, by contrast now it felt a lot, it was a much simpler decision to say this and do this. And I have a lot more kind of skills and, uh, and, and an experience and maybe a thicker skin as well. Um, also, you know, you don't read the text line. That's the other thing. So when I've talked about this on air, mm. I just don't, you know, I'm, I bet there are some people out there who had some stuff to say and I, I know better than to take that on now. I mean, thank you for sharing that. Mm. I, 
it's it's interesting the timing of when you decided to tell your parents about uh, you know being queer, and you you mentioned that it was the awful news of your friend passing, and something that I think a lot about you know I I often muse a lot about death and mortality and things like that, and uh, I, I was listening to the Will Anderson podcast and you did this amazing interview on the Will Anderson podcast and you talked about you know some of the some of your upbringing and your your diagnosis and I wonder. Do you ever think about the role of mortality and non-monogamy? Because it's something that I, it's, it's almost like this kind of, uh, like this seize the day attitude of, that, that yeah. I feel sometimes where it's like, man, we're all going to die. You know, I'm, I'm, we're, yeah. we're not particularly religious. I often have that sense of like, I feel like I'm living on this earth and, you know, it's amazing to have all these incredible experiences and non-monogamy actually informs um, a lot of the way that I just approach life in general. Have you ever thought about that? Yeah. Yeah, I've actually, I mean, that's such a great point. I don't know that I've ever kind of drawn the line between the two, but I think that that, that line exists. Mm. You're right. Like, cause I, um, I did have this, uh, you know, I had, I had leukemia for two years from 15 to 17 and had, uh, uh, you know, pretty intensive treatment for that. And, um, you know, there were a few times where I did nearly die, like literally three times it was, uh, kind of touch and go. And yeah, I have often wondered because I do rush around and live in a way that is, yeah, a little bit, yeah, a little bit cafe diem, you know, kind of. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and I, and I, used, and I always thought that maybe the two were related this kind of like impulse to not miss opportunities and that, you know, that there are things that were too beautiful and too good to, to not experience um, in the world. And I think, yeah, that has to be part of it. Absolutely. Um, I also, I also have the, the, the kind of overlaid framework that I've had for that more recently is ADHD um, because I always put the rushing around and sort of like pleasure seeking down to like a, a carpe diem, you know, consequence of like pop, pop psychology consequence of, you know, near death experience at the age of 15, 16, 17. Uh, but, but now, um, I've also, I also wonder if, yeah, it might be an ADHD thing. This, uh, but yeah, I think, I think both, both would play a role, but yeah, very much like this, um, you know, some, if you meet someone and you have like a very strong connection and you feel compelled, the, the, like putting that, suppressing that, putting that away, putting it in a box, denying it feels like, um, feels like such a dish shame, such like an aberration that, that I've just never wanted to do that. Interesting hearing you talk about ADHD as well here. I was on a date with a guy uh, last year and he- um, Who diagnosed you basically. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> really? He was well, a doctor. No. Um, no, well, he wasn't. I think he he had ADHD, but he, he, was like, he was like, do you have ADHD? Does Liam have ADHD? Because I feel like every single non-monogamous person that I'm meeting or connecting with, like every poly person has ADHD. Like, is that you? He's like, but I've listened to the podcast and it doesn't seem like you two are cutting each other off. I'm wondering if that's to do with editing or what's happening there and all this stuff and I was just like whoa okay um and then I've actually noticed you know in the circles that we're in you know with ADHD non-monogamy 
that's sort of all happening, but I know there is this big, you know, it feels like ADHD is really, um, you know, in the conversation at the moment. Yeah. Uh, have you been um, noticing a bit of a connection between ADHD and non-monogamy in your social circles? Yeah, big time. Yeah, I think that's like that That helps kind of form my own thinking around it. I mean, it, it's hard to kind of unpick the overlapping trends, right, because I think there is a huge uh, – overlap between the queer community and ADHD as well, at least the corner mm-hmm. that I'm in. Um, and then there's also that big overlap between queer community and um, non-monogamous formations and relationships. And, and so it can be, it can be hard to know, yeah, where one, where one stops and the other begins. But, yeah, I think there is something about um, the multiplicity and the, the, you know, just if you, if you look at the kind of basic tenets of like ADHD and the characteristics that we um, that we associate it with it, you know, this uh, getting bored easily, I suppose, but like getting excited about new things very quickly, like a and uh, maybe a, a predisposition to intensity as well, like going going hard into something new um, and. All of those things, you can see how it would it would put you in a pretty perfect place to to be poly. Um, mm. I don't know. Yeah, with I mean, there's a whole lot of caveats to that, but yeah. Because I- I listened to uh, one of your recent Schmeitgeist uh, podcast episodes and it was about ADHD. And it made me think about the parallels between, because obviously non-monogamy is having this sense of really coming to the forefront of cultural um, issues and discussions and people seem to be talking about it so much more. And it feels like there's a similar correlation with the, the way in which ADHD is really coming to the fore as well. And I wonder whether, especially when you were doing your podcast episode, did you feel like there was a sense of social contagion in a way in which the, the, the way non-monogamy is starting to, to come to the fore? Yeah, although, you know, I, I'm interested that you um, say social contagion because I feel like it almost has like a, and this is not an accusation at all, by the way, um, but c- when you talk about contagion, it has like an innate pejorative um, mm. aspect, right? Like we're saying, you know, that there's something disingenuous about people um, you know, that they've caught it, that it's sort of like it's sort mm-hmm. of the language of disease and, vi- and viruses mm. and so on, um, that, you know, maybe it doesn't belong in their lives but it's only there because they see it around them, this kind of like monkey see, monkey do um, framework for understanding it. Whereas I think, yeah, like if we sort of ignore that pejorative, um, set, you know, uh, flavour for a second and talk about the kind of, you know, yeah, yeah, I think they're like I think that that is the case um, because it's it's the kind of it's the first step to um, to challenging normativity, right? Is to demonstrate prevalence. Um, you know, if you if you want to kind of convince people or give anyone the sense that monogamy is not the only choice, like you have other choices if they suit you, then the first thing that they need to see is working examples of it in the world and to have opportunities to talk about it and learn about it. And that doesn't happen unless the conversations happen, you know, unless people start to be open about it, uh, which is also, you know, as part of why I wanted to to do that, I like I want to pour fuel on that fire. I think, 
you know, that's, that's, um, that's important that people, people don't, that you, we can, that's how you break down stigma. And so, yeah, there is, and, and the same thing has happened with, with ADHD. I think, um, using ADHD as a parallel, you know, you do have very clearly that judgment that is, a, you know, there is a perspective when it comes to ADHD at, at some, within the medical community, but I guess more conservative elements in society as well. Look at that and go, oh, people are doing it because it's cool. Um, and that's why, you know, I do, I do try to be careful about how I use language, like, um, cause we are a trend podcast, but those are two topics we covered this season. And of course mm-hmm. there's so much more than trends, but you could say that, you know, the conversation and the interest around them is trending. Perhaps that's like a, um, a way to, to reframe it. Um, but people would say with ADHD that, that a lot of those diagnoses are not genuine and that people are, um, people are, there's mis- basically, yeah, there's misdiagnosis going on basically and, and like a, and a, tre- and a trendiness to it. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think, I think really what it is with, with ADHD, we know that there's such a, there was such a lag in diagnosis because the diagnostic framework was really inadequate um, except for a small cohort in, in the population, you know, young um, white males, particularly, you know, even kids, that was the main, that was how th- those were the people who fit the diagnostic framework and everyone else kind of generally speaking fell outside it. Um, And so there is a catch up going on and maybe there is a catch up going on. It makes sense that there would be a catch up going on with non-monogamy too, because it wasn't an option that felt like it was on the table for people for a long time. And so there is uh, an over, maybe there's an over, well, I wouldn't say overcorrection, but there's just a lot of people who are learning about it for the first time. And so perhaps a bit of a, a rush towards it that that won't be and that pace won't always be maintained um, mm. going forward. It, it, it might be like a bit of a moment in time where where it's all of a sudden on the menu for people who, for whom it wasn't on the menu before. I guess it does raise the question. It harks back to that, that conversation around whether we're born non-monogamous or whether it's something that we kind of acquire. You know, it's like that classic sex at dawn, Christopher Ryan kind mm. of view of, you know, we're all apes. We're all not supposed to, we're kind of trained to be in this monogamous mindset. And I wonder, is, is that something that you've thought about with your own relationship to non-monogamy? Whether you kind of came out of the womb and you're like, hey, I'm going to date multiple people and this is the most natural thing I can possibly do or is yeah. it something that that maybe you've you, you've really come to to learn within yourself and just be open to to allowing it to happen well this is something that came up with Sally right and because she's someone who has like a strong ideological commitment to um polyamory and maybe finds the practice um is more of a reach for her um whereas I'm the other way around uh I I had a a strong commitment to the practice before I even had the language for what it was I was practicing um and ended up like living this way and sort of you know ended up in this world because it was yeah it it happened to me you know I think I I think it is just how I'm wired and how I'm structured it's it's an orientation if if you you know if that's something, you know, if that's valid, you know, if people think that's valid, I've, I've, I've tried other ways. I've tried, I've tried to be monogamous and it, um, it has been at times a a fully fledged disaster. And (laughs) that is why I, I now 
um, as a bottom line, like I, you know, very early on, very at the outset of, you know, making a connection with someone, it's something that I put on the table because um, that is, it's a, it's sort of a non-negotiable for me, not because, you know, I must have what I want, you know, and, I, and you know, at the expense of what you want, but th- it's just a need, you know, and, um, and if those, any, you know, if in a relationship, if your needs are incompatible, then, you know, you will crash out eventually. It's you honoring yourself and really needing to be open and transparent about that straight away. You know, it's not the kind of thing that you want to mention after the fourth date that you're having with someone that you're non-monogamous, like they really need to know, you know, straight away. Uh, I think Liam and I really connect with you when you share about how it was just something that was so innate and within you, you know, before you had the language around it. I know nine years ago when we were opening up our relationship, we didn't know anything about compersion or a metamor or parallel polyamory or we just thought we were really slutty that was the- <laughs> we, like we felt compersion we we had all of these feelings but we had no language around it we had no community around it we thought that we were we must have been like the only couple that felt this way yeah like- the only polys in the village i think <laughs> yeah yeah and what a lonely path you know and scary mm. as well because that's when you have you know and, and so good that you had, you felt that way and you had that realization together um, because that's, that's, you know, at least somewhat less lonely. Um, but mm. the way that I kind of came to it was um, kind of crashing out of what was a very big love for me, a, a relationship that I thought was probably my forever relationship. And we were monogamous and I was in my uh, early twenties when we met and it was this, you know, it was this big deal. And, and when, um, this other, you know, I guess my polyness asserted itself when I developed feelings for other people um, in a way that I felt I couldn't regulate. It felt like such a massive failing and the guilt and the shame that came with that was, um, you know, I wouldn't wish it on anyone and it was really harmful and it took years to kind of unpick that. Um, and I did kind of like muddle my way through to, um, you know, an, op- an open relationship and I sort of pitched it within the context of that relationship and it ultimately wasn't the right thing for us. And I think, you know, we were so new to it that we didn't have any of that support. Um, we didn't have any theoretical frameworks and we made a lot of mistakes and we hurt each other. And and I think, yeah, that kind of, that was what set me on the path to going, to, to just knowing that it was a commitment for me and not, yeah, not a negotiable. That's really interesting, that kind of like the opening stages of non-monogamy because I felt like when we started to explore non-monogamy, we had some just amazing people around us, almost like our, like you know non-monogamy role models, I would say, who kind of took us under their wing and said, we'll show you the way, you know, the, this is the path to enlightenment, you know. Yeah. <laughs> It felt it felt a little bit culty at the time, but in the most beautiful way possible. You know, it was it was just a really nurturing. But and and this one particular couple that I'm thinking of, because um, we lived in New York for six years, and at the start when we were initially exploring, um, you know, just through a I think it was a, a non-monogamous uh, 
lecture series that we that we met this this wonderful lady and then her husband, and they kind of took us, uh, you know, under under their wings. And they were maybe mm. in their mid forties at the time, and they had a huge wealth of experience, and they'd kind mm. of made a lot of the mistakes that they were were kind of, I guess, warning us away from. <laughs> you know, they're saying, "Don't mm. do this. This is a bad idea." And we were thinking, "Man, I'm really glad that you told us because we definitely would have done that." <laughs> you know, that was absolutely a thing that we would have done. So, did you have those role models? I had so few. I had one. Um, I had one good friend who I had a conversation with early on. They were living in Berlin, um, and uh, and and they'd sort of. Uh, they've been fairly public about it. it was Craig Shufton. I don't know if you remember Craig Shufton. He was a he was a, um, tri- a Triple J broadcaster for many years uh, and a, and a music critic and just like a you know really thoughtful, engaged mm-hmm. person who who always read like a lot of sort of sociology and you know I guess you know he, he just was very schooled um, and he informed some of my early thinking, but I didn't have very many working examples for how it looked in the world. And at that stage, at that point, it was like people weren't as open about it in the, you know, outside of, I guess, the very, you know, the capital capital P polyamory community, um, you know, just in the kind of run-of-the-mill world. It wasn't a conversation that was happening in the way that it is now. Mm. And so it was very easy. I had to really fight against this. When that big relationship, that really important relationship failed and it did so in the throes of us both trying out non-monogamy, the narrative, and I heard it, people were like, you know, they weren't rude about it, but you just you just heard it reflected back to you and, and I sort of had this moment. It's like, oh, well, op- being open broke our relationship. Mm. Um, and seeing that rather as, rather than being an indictment on, you know, my compatibility with that person or just a consequence of, you know, two people who love each other hurting each other by accident um, and then, you know, needing to kind of deal with the wreckage of that, it was so, like, the very tempting narrative that a lot of people were sort of reflecting back to me was like, oh, well, you you know, you that was that was why. It was because it was an, ind- it was an indictment on um, non-monogamy. And the lesson to learn was to never do that again. <laughs> mm. <laughs> um, and I, yeah, and I, 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 I didn't, I didn't take that on. Obviously, I, that's not what I took away from it. But that was, that was what was kind of being pushed out to me. Um, by a lot of people in my life. And I wonder if that sort of reaction as well can come from a place of it really validates people's choice, you know, to be monogamous or their unconscious choice to be monogamous. Like when when they see polyamory or non-monogamy falling apart, it's like, Okay. Yep. Okay. Let's we just are stick. All monogamous people. <laughs> Let's just stick with the monogamy because yeah. it's just not worth it. It's too much. Like it can be a little bit val- more validating in the way, uh, you know, in a way for that choice. There is something self-soothing in that conversation but when people see um non-monogamy fail um and not everyone can see i just inverted commas for people listening to the audio um but there's something really reassuring about that narrative especially if those are people who have maybe felt as if they've compromised their happiness along the way for 
the sake of, you know, com- commitment to monogamy. Um, mm. You know, but the older they are, the more pronounced that can be because, you know, that, that, that awareness is brighter or the awareness of, you know, oh, we, you know, that we only have one life is brighter and dimmer for certain people, but we all have it to some extent. And so the older you are and the more you've compromised, the more you need those choices that you've made confirmed and ideas that challenge those choices and, and, and sort of say like, well, maybe there was another way that you didn't take that you could have taken. You can see how that can be quite a painful um, a painful confrontation with, with yourself. Um, and so it makes sense that, you know, when faced with those choices, you know, how do I react to this? How do I feel about this? You're going to you're going to take the path potentially that affirms your choices and your, you know, the identity and, you know, the life you've constructed for yourself and tell yourself that there was no other way. I did the only thing that I could have done because regret is an incredibly painful experience. Um, And, yeah, I guess the sort of, yeah, a a version of that is um, people, people just love to be, people love to be confirmed in in the choices they've made and saying, well, but, well, you know, open doesn't work and, well, you know, you pro- it was probably just like a precursor to you breaking up anyway and, you, you know, next time you just skip straight to the breakup. That um, that narrative, you know, I don't even know how many times I've heard that. Um, I think people know better than to say it to me now. But I know they're thinking it. <laughs> One of the amazing things about you talking so openly about this is that you do have a public platform. And because you work for the, you know, the, the, the Australian national broadcaster, the ABC, for me, I personally find it really inspiring because we had to make the decision. Um, and obviously now we're, we're open uh, about our decision, um, you know, with our relationship and the fact that we've been in this relationship for the, you know, o- open in our relationship for the last almost 10 years. But because of our jobs, we've had to be very mindful of the fact, you know, what what is the perception going to be like? How is this going to be received that we're coming out as this, you know, non-monogamous couple? Are people going to throw shade at us? Is it going to compromise, you know, our work environments as well? Is this something that you thought about, you know, you're, you're at the ABC, was there a, a part of you that thought, oh man, I wonder how people at work are going to be about this? Are they going to say, you know, don't talk about this on the radio or was there any part of you that really considered those options? I wouldn't have done this at every point in my career up to now. There, It wouldn't have been possible um, and it wouldn't have been wise and there are still risks attached to doing it, but I know myself quite well and I, 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 there are like, I know how I would defend this. And I think that's the first thing you need to, to know if you're going to make that decision. It's like, so you almost need to like red team it and go like, okay, what's the worst thing that could happen here? And which is not like, it's not advice that you'll get very often for, um, you know, anxiety, for example. Like if you have, if you're anxious about something, I feel like it's not, it's not the um, conventional wisdom to say, okay, think about the worst possible result here. But it is actually the best medicine, I think, because, well, one, the worst case scenario is, is actually, the realistic worst case scenario is never actually as bad as um, as the, the nightmare that you're entertaining. Um, and if it is, then you should probably look at that. Then, then it turns out your anxiety 
your concern is a is a totally reasonable concern to hold and you shouldn't ignore it. But if it's not, then that's a path through it. And also imagining, you know, mentally going to the worst case scenario of going like, is, is this a conversation with my bosses? Do they feel like I'm, uh, or, you know, do, is there like a, a you know, right-wing media campaign against me or do I get trolled, you know, um, what is the, like, do I, am I, like, become, do I become a target for hate speech online, you know, all of these scenarios and, you know, kind of going, well, how likely is that and then how would I respond? And I feel pretty secure in what my response would be. I feel like there are no scenarios there that I couldn't cope with. Obviously, they're not desirable, but they're also not super likely um and and even if they did come to pass i i i know who i am now and i know how i there is a really um very concrete ethical and even like um professional rationale for this choice uh and i have i've no yeah, I did. There was there was no hesitation really in the end, and um, and I certainly don't have uh, any regrets at this point. You're incredible, mm, super empowering, and just the destigmatizing of everything with you coming out and talking about it. You know, in your position, I think the more people that can talk about non-monogamy, just the the better it will be to normalize everything and to make it not be this big a deal anymore. And that really just comes from people like you coming out and talking about it in that way, just sort of casually, you know, on your podcast. Oh, and by the way, I'm non-monogamous as well. And it's, you know, it's very powerful. It's really wonderful. I also wanted to say that, you know, we were talking before about Sally Olds and, you know, this kind of uh, desire to not be reduced to that. Not that it's a bad or small thing. It's a big thing and it's and it's great, but um, to not be defined wholly and solely via that framework, you know, like, oh, this is the poly person. It's not just because of the cringe aspect um, insofar as, that exists. If we are normalizing this, if we're saying that this is just a legitimate option um, for people and that, you know, it's possible and here is how it looks and works and here, you know, here's how it works for me, then it's not everything about me. Like it's not like it's not, I don't, that's not my first thought in the morning and last thought at night. Um, you know, it's, it, there are so many other dimensions to who I am and aspects to my um, identity and my humanity than being non-monogamous and that's as it should be and if we make it just a casual like an oh by the way you know there's something important about not putting about mentioning it but not putting this total spotlight on it and saying and that is who I am we're, we're all uh, a shade or two more complicated than that, I think. You know, talking about being like the poly person, you know, I feel like that's something that I've really come up with within myself, you know, because we were, we, when we were living overseas and we were out as being non-monogamous, it wasn't really a big deal. We were in non-monogamous communities, you know, we were just sort of living our life and it was just a part of, part of our life. Um, I decided to, when we moved back home to Australia, I decided to talk more about it. You know, we moved back, our son was one year old at the time. I was sort of finding myself in these mothers groups and everything was very normative, straight, 
mono mm. relationships. And I think it was through lockdown and COVID, I just sort of started to write about it and blog about it. And I was a bit nervous at first, but then after a while, you know, the reception was really warm and I was sharing it with the other mum friends and, you know, it was really sparking so many fantastic conversations. Now mm. it's sort of turned into something a little bit more. And once a month, Liam and I host a, we host a, like a conversation evening for non-monogamy and, you know, it's we, now we have the podcast and it is really interesting actually now it is something when I'm chatting with people people always come to me and they always want to talk to me about poly all of the time mm. and it is that thing where it's like well you know sure we have this and we we personally really enjoy it we love having these conversations but we also have other interests other projects our work we're parents we have our friends our family <laughs> like it's not everything but I think because we do have this you know we do have our evolving love project little platform it sort of does become a, a real uh, conversation. I mean, uh, people think we're having orgies just all the time. I think that's the yeah. That's the that's, yeah. that's, that's the takeaway. But it is amazing that you that you do both of you kind of platform non monogamy in such beautiful ways. And before we leave, because I'm aware of your your time, Ange, you are platforming uh, the discussion around non monogamy and monogamy in an incredible way. Can you tell us a little bit about what you've got planned? Oh yeah, so people within Kui of Sydney this weekend, there is uh, a comedy debate that I've that I'm hosting and that I've programmed for Vivid Sydney and look the t- it's called you know monogamy the qu- the natural way to love question mark so what we've done there is we're sneaking in a conversation about uh, non-monogamy and polyamory uh, into a very public place uh, no but Vivid, Vivid were really up for it they love this idea straight away and we've got uh, a really, a really great set of people talking about it, uh, both, you know, monogamous and, uh, you know, people practicing non-monogamy as well. Uh, it's Norman Swan, Alex Lee, uh, James Colley, uh, Annalise Constable, Anna Piper Scott, uh, and Elfie Scott. Well, I just realized there's two Scots in there. No relation. Um, but they are, we're doing it, we're doing, I guess, yeah, we want, I wanted to, to have this debate. Um, I mean, it's human such a great way into these things, but, uh, it, it just felt like too good an opportunity to kind of put this, put this in a really public place and have like a fun conversation about it. Like not a, like, not a, like, it's not going to be too self-serious. Of course, we're going to, we're going to talk about it, but, uh, yeah, that's happening this Saturday night. Uh, and there are tickets on the Vivid website if people do want to come along. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a a real pleasure to talk, and uh, thanks for all your amazing work that you do with the the ABC podcast, and we hope to, to talk with you soon. Thank you so much, Ange. Thanks for having me, guys.